I don't think we're unfamiliar with the idea of glory. I think we understand what glory is, even though we may not define it. If we, uh, if, if we were to do a Google search, as I did, and you define glory, or you just type in glory into Google, it's going to come up with a definition. But uh, other than the definition, it's also going to come up with a, a 1989 film entitled Glory. And uh, I remember watching it when I was younger. I, I really can't remember much, but I, I know that it's based off of historical events of the 54th Massachusetts during the Civil War. Now, the 54th Massachusetts was one of the very first, as they called it back then, colored regiments. You see, a lot of people in the North didn't believe that uh, anyone who was of a darker complexion should have fought for any freedom. But the guy who Matthew Broderick, you know Matthew Broderick, Ferris Bueller, uh, he plays a guy, a colonel, Colonel Shaw, and he, and he recruits these men. And we see guys like Denzel Washington and Morgan Freeman, they're, they're a part of that group. In the final section of the movie, they storm Fort Wagner, and they show the glory of war. We understand the idea, the concepts of glory. Oftentimes when we think about war or war movies, we also see the concept of glory in the Olympics. So if any of you watched the Winter Olympics that just happened a couple months ago, uh, you would see people ice skating and twirling and uh, bobsledding and curling, which curling is weird, but uh, they still give a gold medal for the winners, right? And the, and the quintessence of the Olympic Games is that you earn glory by getting a medal for your country and, and getting a gold medal. You stand up on the podium and you hear your national anthem. That's our idea of glory. We don't think of death as glorious. We don't think as someone being crushed as glorious. I'll tell you what. I played basketball in high school for a small Christian school. We were around the Indianapolis area. And we played some schools that were 100 times bigger than us, okay? I, and I think just about 100 times bigger than us. 4,000, 5,000 people. And so in my little Christian school, we had a few dozen guys to pick to play basketball. I was the tallest one on our team, which meant I was guarding guys who were a lot bigger and stronger and better than me all the time, about every game. And there were some games that it really showed. I'll never forget playing Warren Central, one of the largest schools in the Indianapolis area. It was a JV game my freshman year. Uh, I, I was, I think, our leading scorer with uh, six points. My friend Drew had four. The rest of our team had nothing else. And I think Warren Central had about 89 points. <laughs> there was nothing glorious in that defeat. We don't think as being crushed as something glorious. But herein is the issue. Our perspective of glory is limited by finite minds. What's glorious about five young men, their future before them? Bright, educated, have all the modern technology at their fingertips. Going down to a people who are ancients, using spears and sticks. These men had access to guns. They had access to airplanes. They go down to an Ecuadorian jungle. And in the Ecuadorian jungle, 
They were compelled by the love of Jesus to try to share the gospel. And even though those men had firearms, even though they had planes, they were crushed by the spears of Aka Indians. What's glorious about that? You might be familiar with these men. Nate Saint, Jim Elliott, Pete Fleming, Roger Udarian, Ed McCauley. On January 8th of 1956, those men who were all married, all had young children, their lives ahead of them, were crushed, killed by people that they easily could have defeated. What's glorious about that? Well, their death was glorious in the sight of God. You see, these, these normal American men had the unusual choice, the unusual decision to follow after Christ by going to the jungles of Ecuador and sharing the hope of the gospel, talking about the glory of Jesus. And guess what? They didn't even really get to share with those specific people that were killed. Friends, as, as we look at John chapter 1, we're going to finish the prologue, the introduction today. And we have this idea of glory. But it's not like the world's glory. It's not like the world's glory where you see the conqueror, where you see the champion, where you see someone standing up tall because they have defeated their enemies. Not right away, at least. As we begin in, in, in verse 14, we're going to see that Jesus displays the glory of God. And what I'm going I'm to argue is that the glory of God is his missionary heart. You see, God's missionary heart reveals his glory. And it's revealed in Christ. If you're there, read with me. John chapter 1, starting in verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glories of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. And from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the father's side. He has made him known. Friends, this morning we're going to see in John 1, 14 through 18, that God gloriously manifests his missionary heart by sending Jesus. God gloriously shows, right? We don't use manifest often, but it's going to be in all the points today. So I want to define manifest. He, he displays, he shows his missionary heart by sending Jesus. And you might say, uh, talking about the heart of God, what, what is that? And what I mean by, by showing the heart is God is showing who he truly is. He's showing that he is a missionary God, that he cares about people. He's showing his love and his grace. And he does that through a single person, and he does that through the person of Jesus Christ. So God is gloriously showing his missionary heart, and we have to remember that we're in John's introduction. These first 18 verses, John's just throwing out the ideas of the rest of his book. 
And, and when we get to the end of the book, we know that he wrote it so that you might believe in him, that's Jesus, and by believing in him, you might inherit eternal life. But also he writes at the end of his book in John 20, 21, that Jesus was sent by God, and as he was sent by God, now he's sending us out into the world to tell others of God's glory. Why? Because God is a missionary God. And at the heart of God's missionary heart, at the very essence of that is that God wants to be close to you. God wants to bring you close to himself. But there's an issue here. Because what happened last week is what we saw in verse 10 and 11. So just glance up there real quick in John 1. So the light came into the world. That's Jesus. And he was in the world and the world was made through him. He's the creator, remember? But what's the issue? Yet the world did not know him. In verse 11, he came to his own and his own people did not receive him. He was rejected. He was scorned. In fact, you could call the world Christ's enemies. That's the issue. We're enemies. And if you're enemies of God, why would you ever, ever, ever try to run after him? To, to go to him? We wouldn't. If you have an enemy, you're going to try to avoid them at all costs, right? You meet them in the grocery store, you're going to go down the other aisle, even if what you need is right there, because you don't want to see them. And God pursued his enemies. God pursued his enemies by sending his son, Jesus Christ. That's what we read. And God is gloriously manifesting his missionary heart through his son. And I'm going to show you five ways that God manifests himself through Jesus. The first way, Jesus manifests God's humility. Jesus manifests God's humility. The very fact that God would commit to come after wayward humans is tremendous. There's humility. Think about this. The word became flesh. Now, doesn't that take us back to Christmas? Some of you are like, well, hold on. Isn't this a Christmas text? Yes. That talks about the incarnation, God taking on human flesh and coming down to us. But as he comes down to us, he displays his humility for a purpose because he wants to display his glory. And as he displays his humility, he comes down in the human flesh. This is the God who made everything. This is the God who has angels continually bowing down and worshiping him day after day after day. This is the God who has made at least, we don't even know how big the universe is, but at least 93 billion light years of the universe. Every star to every molecule is made by this God and he comes down in human flesh. That's humility. Now, there was... Some people who thought that Jesus didn't actually come in, in, you know, in flesh and in skin and bone and muscles and blood, but he did, and John's making that known. There were some people back in the day who were Gnostics, and there's still even some people today who, who try to say that Jesus never actually came in the flesh, but he was just a spirit. He was just a good idea, just, just a vision. Nothing could be further from the truth. It is true that when the flesh is mentioned in the New Testament, oftentimes, like in Romans 1.3 or 8.6 or 1 Timothy 3.16 or 1 John 4.2, a couple of verses for you, that the flesh is wicked, referring to our sinful self. But Jesus did not 
come as a sinner, but to save sinners. He came down to us to have contact with us. He condescended to us. Condescension sometimes can be demeaning, but sometimes condescension is a good thing. If you're trying to explain something to a two-year-old, to a three-year-old, you're going to have to condescend. You're going to have to get on their level. You're going to have to speak their language. That's what God does through Christ. He comes down to us. He takes on our flesh. That's important. It shows his humility. But, but not just his humility is shown, but God demonstrates his humility in Jesus because of his love. And that's our second way that Jesus manifests God's missionary heart is, is Jesus manifests God's love. Now, how can I say that? Well, because Jesus came to dwell, right? And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. John would later write in 1 John 4, 7 through 8, that God is love, right? When we're called to love one another, Jesus is that demonstration. God is that demonstration of love. Not that love equals God, that's, that's heresy, okay? But that God loves his character is to love. It overflows, and that's why he sent his son Jesus down, because he not only is displaying the humility of his own heart and coming after us, but he displays the love of his own heart to come after you and I, his enemies, people who have rejected him. And, and as, he, as he comes down to us, we're struck with the fact that he dwelt among us. He lived among us. That word echoes an Old Testament theme. Some of you know this. Uh, the word could be translated there, dwelt. It could be translated tabernacled. It means tent. Okay? And, and that's, that's interesting because in the Old Testament, there was a tabernacle. There's a guy named Moses. We're going to talk about him more later today. There's a guy named Moses. The Lord said, hey, I want to dwell with my people right in the center of their camp as they're walking around the desert. He wanted to dwell with his people, and so he said, build me a place where you can come before me. So he gives instructions, and they build this really, really nice tent, and it's the tabernacle. And in the tabernacle, you had an area where people could worship and make sacrifices, and, and then you had the holy place. Only the priests could go there. And then you had the holy of holies, or the most holy place. And that's where the Shekinah glory, the glory of God dwelt. He was with his people. And so then you look at John 1.14, Jesus came and tabernacled among his people. He dwelt with humanity. God came down and showed his glory in Christ. That's important for us. Because here's the deal, you and I, as we see God's missionary heart, it should move our affections that God would love us so much to show his humility and his love and come down to you and I, but it, we also know that we're called to go out after others. Do we do a good job of that? We're called to dwell with those who have rejected us. And most often than not, when we are called, uh, we, we say, okay, we're called to live missionally for Jesus. So I want to share with my family and my friends about Jesus. That's great. But that's not who Jesus came for. 
Jesus came for his enemies. God manifests his glory through Jesus to his enemies. That Christ would actually come down to us. But we refuse to go down to anybody else. So, some of you are really good church people. And, and if you're a guest, okay, um, we look especially good today because it's Easter. But as good church people, do you ever go to people who are difficult? Do you ever go to the people that you wouldn't say they're, they're not ready for Jesus? They're not church people. Have you ever talked to them? Have you ever talked to that guy? He uses a curse word in every other sentence. Have you ever seen her? She's tat, tat, tatted up. But what, what does Jesus do? His love and his humility, he comes down to us. He condescends to us. He comes among us. People who were his enemies, he comes down to us and he lives with us and he, and he dwells among humanity. How, how often do we do that? How often do we come down and sit on people's levels because the love of God has compelled us so much just to, to love others? That we say, wow, God has loved me in Christ. He has displayed his humility in Christ. Do we do that? Do we do that with the wayward child? Do we sit with them say, wow, this is so difficult. Do, do we do that with the neighbors who play their music especially loud, who had no, no intention at all of coming to church this morning, who are probably on their fifth brewski of the day? Do we go to them? Do we sit with them? Do we dwell with them? God manifests his glory by dwelling with us. See, friends, that's what it means to be missional. That's God's missionary heart, is that he came down to us. He got on our level. And he just dwelled with us. I'm thankful for that. Friends, we cannot be afraid to associate with those people who we go, ugh. Because you know what? If God took that approach, we talked about on Friday, some of you weren't here, we talked about how God is a holy God. And holiness can't be, a, be around sin. And so he, here's a holy God and he would come down. He didn't go, oh, I'm thankful for that. Aren't you? Because let me raise my hand. I will say I am a sinner. Dirty, rotten, stinking sinner. But Jesus manifests God's glory and humility and love by coming down for me and you. And now he compels us to go. Not only does Jesus manifest God's missionary heart, by humility and love, but he does it to display the glory of God. He does it to display the glory of God. So let's, let's read on here. Uh, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. 
So again, going back to that idea of he dwelled among us, God dwelled among his people in the Old Testament. He wanted to show how glorious and awesome he was. He parted the Red Sea and he dropped manna from heaven, but he gave them his glory in their tabernacle. And Jesus comes down and he's glorious, but I got to call a time out here. How does Jesus display the glory of God? Because we think of him as the savior of the world, but when he was born in Bethlehem, he was a couple peasants child. He didn't sit on a throne when he was on earth. He didn't have an army. In fact, actually, Isaiah tells us in Isaiah 53 too, as he's prophesying about this coming Messiah, as this suffering servant's coming, he, he tells us that there's no beauty that anyone would be attracted to him. We think of, of glorious things as th- things to look at that are beautiful. There's no beauty that we should be attracted to Christ. So how, how does Jesus display the glory of God? Well, it says it. He's the only son from the Father. That makes him glorious in and of himself, but we still wouldn't know unless he displayed through real actions coming down full of grace and truth. And here's how Jesus lived. And some of you say, I just want to live like Jesus. Remember those what would Jesus do bracelets, right? Jesus lived every moment of his life full of grace and truth. That's that's how Jesus manifests the glory of God in his life. Jesus dealt with people, just like we'll talk about in a few weeks in John chapter 4, one of my favorite stories in all the Bible, because here is an outcast of the outcast of the outcast, a woman, not just any woman, because back in that day, women were second-class citizens, but it was a Samaritan woman. Samaritans were second-class citizens compared to the Jews. But not just any Samaritan woman. She just kept finding guy after guy after guy. She had had five husbands and was living with a sixth man. She's the outcast of the outcast of the outcast. And as we'll see in a couple weeks, Jesus comes down to her. And not only does he show her grace, we all like that. We all like the grace. There's love. But Jesus calls her out on her sin. This is how we're to live. And and Jesus lived that life perfectly, full of grace, full of truth, all the way to the point of death on the cross. And you say, how does Jesus display the glory of God? He shows the glory of God in the highest form on the cross and in his resurrection. But you couldn't get there without a perfect life. He lived the perfect life you and I could never live. Try living one day by yourself, full of grace and truth. Inevitably, you're going to get behind someone who's a slow driver, and you're not going to be full of grace and truth. That's where we're at. We can't live one day full of grace and truth in and of ourselves, but Christ lived every single day full of grace and truth and got to the point of the cross. And we talked about glory, and, and what's glory about those, those five men dying, being killed by spears, by Aka Indians. What's so glorious about that? It was glorious because they were trying to tell those Aka Indians who had never heard of Jesus that Jesus came and died on the cross for them and rose again. You see, the rest of the earth, 
Everyone else, like, we're trying to figure this life out, and we just don't really think what's coming, except for at funerals. And we go to funerals, and we see that person lying there, and they're dead. And we're reminded, death's at our door. And so, so we try to numb the pain of death and thinking about that. And honestly, that, that's why some people are addicted to drugs. That's why some people are addicted to pornography. That's why some people are just addicted to things that will numb their minds because the realities of life are hard and difficult. But here's Jesus. Here we're shown the glory of God because he provides us hope. And that's what those five men that were actually my age they were like 31 years old. I'm 31 years old. That's how old they were. They had little kids. That's right where I'm at. And they gave their life to just try to tell people who had never heard about Jesus about him. Why? Because Jesus offers a hope that you and I never could have. And he shows the glory of God. So Jesus comes down, he goes to the cross, and he demonstrates his glory on the cross. And British pastor Charles Spurgeon says this, did Jesus look upon his suffering as his glory? He does not merely pray in John 17 too, sustain thy son, but he says, glorify thy son. As he was getting ready to go to the cross, Jesus was in the garden of Gethsemane praying to God, and he says, glorify thy son. In truth, our Lord's lowest stoop was his highest glory. He was never more resplendent than when he hung upon the cross that was his true spiritual throne. So he prayed, glorify thy son. Why is the cross glorious? The cross is glorious because it shows the depth of God's love, the depth that he will go to redeem people, to bring them near to himself. I told you God has a missionary heart and it's displayed gloriously through the sending of his son. Why did Jesus come to earth? Why was he born? Why did he take on flesh? Yes, it was to display the humility of God and the love of God and the glory of God, but he did it for a specific purpose and that purpose was that he would take on the cross. That he would make it possible through the, his blood that you and I might come to God. And that's all, that's all great, right? That's all great. As long as he rises from the dead. I could go out there right now and I could die for you, right? Like, I'll drag you out there, stick you at the four-way stop, a car comes, I'll push you out of the way and I'll die for you. There's nothing glorious about that necessarily. Oh, great, Chase died for me. We're grateful for that. I get to live a few more years. But what Christ's death accomplishes is eternal life. And not just eternal life, but eternal life with the God who made you and loves you and knows you better than yourself. And you know the depths of your own heart. You know the wickedness of your own heart. You know, like, I'm not that good. You look in the mirror and you, you know what's in your head and your heart. And yet, God loves you enough to send Jesus to die on the cross for you, but also to rise again. 
As scripture says elsewhere, that Christ's resurrection, that's our resurrection. This Sunday, we celebrate Jesus. And Kelsey was telling me on the way here, she said, you know, I just was praying to the Lord, and I just was thanking him that he rose from the grave. And we celebrate that. Thank you, Jesus, for rising from the grave. But not only just rising from the grave, but saying, I did it so that it can be counted to you as well. That's glorious. And so we come to verse 15 here, and, and John has these parentheses, and he's talking about John the Baptist. And John the Baptist says, uh, or he says about John the Baptist, John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. And it seems completely out of place. Like, why did you put that in there? But it's talking about the glory of God. Because he's, John the Baptist is talking about the preeminence of Christ. If you didn't know, John the Baptist and Jesus were cousins. And John the Baptist was the older cousin. And yet he says right here, this guy was before me. He's talking about the preeminence of Christ. He's talking that he is God and he has dwelled forever and ever and ever and lived forever and ever and ever. That's the glory of the God who came down. And as verse 16 continues, and from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. What does that mean? Well, it means that he was accomplishing something on the cross. You see, uh, fourthly, Jesus manifests God's grace. He's, he's God, but he's manifesting not only God's glory, but his grace. Grace is mentioned here in John more than anywhere else in John's writings. These little verses right here. And Jesus shows God's grace how? Well, it says grace upon grace. Or maybe there's a note in your Bible that says they could have translated that grace in place of grace. Now, what's, what's that talking about? Well, there's, there's something that's going on in verse 17 because it says, For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So, so what is John doing? Is he pitting Jesus against Moses? Not necessarily. What he's saying is that the law was good. Grace. Grace from God. You see, uh, in Romans 7, 7, Paul also echoes that. He says that the law is good. Friends, if you want to live a really good life, if you want to live this, this crazy life well, follow God's law. Like, like it's, it's good. It helps you live your best life. But here's also the issue with the law. Because 1 Corinthians 15, 56 says, the power of sin is the law. You see, the, the, the law comes in, and have you ever read the law? It's not just the Ten Commandments. There's a lot more. And it's hard. I can't even keep the Ten Commandments. And so the law condemns me. The law says, well, Chase, you've lied. You're a liar. And Chase, you've lusted. You're, you're an adulterer. And that's what Jesus tells us, right? And it's like, oh, man, and I can go on and on and on. I've, I've not liked someone before. And guess what Jesus says? I'm a murderer. I'm condemned by the law. The law's great if I could keep the law. The law's awesome. But I can't keep the law, and neither can you. We fall short of the law. And so John's not saying that the law's bad. He says it's grace. 
But now Jesus comes in. Jesus comes in bringing the grace of God and showing the grace of God. He's full of truth and grace. And so what happens is that Jesus is greater than Moses. Jesus comes in and he doesn't just say, this is how you have to live for God. He comes in and he says, I've lived perfectly for God. And because of my death, now that perfection, my righteousness, can now be yours. Friends, that's important. <laughs> the law's great, but you can't keep the law. The law condemns. And the difference between the law and the gospel is the gospel also condemns. The gospel says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But there's hope. There's hope because of Jesus. There's hope because he manifests the grace of God. He died on the cross for you. He died on the cross for me. And now because of what Jesus did on the cross and because he rose victoriously, guess what? I have hope in the gospel. Because yes, the law condemns me. I failed. I have fallen way, way short. But now the gospel of Jesus Christ comes in and, and Christ's righteousness, his perfect life, is now given to me. Just through belief. And now I'm called to live differently. And you know, part of, part of living missionally Part of living on mission for Jesus, as we say all the time at our church, is living a Christian life. That's part of the living missionally. It's not that complicated, really, to be honest. We overcomplicate things sometimes. That means that we don't live in the law. Okay? That means that we don't live in the law. We, we, we don't live in the law because if we live in the law... We can't go out there to Boyd Township or Huntington, New Haven, wherever you live. We can't go out there and say, I'm a mess. Because if we live in the law, uh, if we say I'm a mess, we realize there's no hope for me. And now I'm just going to keep trying to just do better, pull myself up by the bootstraps, just do better. I got, I got to be better today. Instead of one Bible chapter, I got to read two Bible chapters. The difference here then in living in the grace of Jesus Christ is that you can say, I'm a mess. I'm a mess, but Christ is perfect. And he came in to sweep away my mess and to give me new life. And now I'm free. And I can say, yeah, I'm really trying to keep up the law. I'm trying to live that law out as best as I can in the grace of Christ. I fail. But I have hope because Jesus paid for my failure. And so then now we're, we're free and, and we can say, and guess what? You're a mess. But Jesus died on the cross for your mess as well. That's living a Christian life. That's being full of grace and truth. And the good news is anybody can get in on this. I'm thankful for that. And why is that? Well, it's because of this. Verse 18. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Uh, the fifth point, the last point, is Jesus manifests God's character. And, and, and I, I told you that God gloriously manifests his missionary heart, right, through sending his son Jesus, and then we have this fifth point, right? Jesus manifests God's character. 
I was talking to Brandon earlier on in the week. He's like, could you maybe drop that last point? Because that's your big idea. But in verse 18, that's what it says. And it's important. John's trying to say that, and then he, then he ends his whole introduction saying just those words. None of us have gotten to God. None of us have seen the heart of God. But Christ came. Christ came so that we can see God. And that's a good thing. Because you see, God's missionary heart is he wants to bring us close. He's the creator who has made you, informed you, and knows you. The very breath that you breathe is the common grace of God. But he gives us special grace in Christ. And that special grace in Christ shows us that God really wants you to know him. That phrase, has made him known comes from a Greek word where we get the word exegesis from. Some of you know that word, seminary word. I'll explain it to you. Exegesis is explaining, expounding upon. That's what I do when I preach. I'm explaining the Bible. Well, what does Jesus do? He's explaining God. He comes down to earth so that when we look at Jesus, we look at God. When we see the heart of Jesus, we see the heart of God. When, when we read in the coming weeks about all these interactions, whether it's the woman at the well or the man born blind, we see God interacting with people. And time and time and time again, we see that he loves us. He wants to draw us close. Jim Elliott, one of those five young men who was killed, he knew that God had a missionary heart. And he knew the purpose behind that is that God wants to bring us close to himself. So he had a, a journal, and he would just write little, little tidbits. And his wife, Elizabeth Elliot, later printed this. It's called The Journals of Jim Elliot, Missionary, Martyr, Man of God. And he says this, on February 2nd of his junior year of college, he said, Lord, and back then they still wrote, sometimes King James-ish, so bear with me. Lord, I know thou art with me. But I fear that because my life is so barren for thee so much of the time, you gain little glory from being with me. I pray thee, make my way prosperous, not that I achieve high station, but that my life might be an exhibit to the value of knowing God. Junior year of college. About nine years later, his death was worldwide news. People couldn't explain it. Why would these young men go to the jungles of Ecuador? And they had firearms. They were warned, these people are dangerous. Why wouldn't they use them? Why would they go? display the glory of God. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. Why? To die on the cross. To rise again. To offer us the hope that God wants us to know him. God's missionary hearts displayed through Christ. 
and we're called to live that out.